Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. Ladies, good to see everyone this morning. Glad to have everyone who's watching us on live stream this morning. It's a good, beautiful day to be together. I hope you saw some of the rolling announcements as you came in. I want to highlight one that I haven't yet. Um, of course, we still have projects ongoing with the 411 House and the Unincluded Club. But we also have a project going on here at TBC, which is our annual food drive, where we serve 50 families um, in our church and surrounding communities who, who need food for the holidays. And so if you go to our website, to the hub, you can see an Amazon wish list. If you would like to, to contribute to the food drive that way, or um, this Sunday you'll see um, big trash cans all around um, the sanctuary and in here uh, where you can drop off food donations. There's a list of specific items that we're requesting, so I encourage you to look, that, look at that on, on our website. I want to um, just take a moment to call us to worship today. Um, I'm going to be teaching, but I do want us to, uh, to take a moment and to just consider and think on the goodness of God together to try to empty our minds of all the anxiety and stress and the worries we bring into this room and to just let them go. I hope you had a great time talking about Psalm 59, which we, we saw in our lesson today. We, we quoted it last week, so we're going to quote another one, very similar time frame that David, um, that David wrote. Um, I'd like everybody to stand again like we did last week, and we're just going to read this together from Psalm 142. Five to seven, and then I'll pray for us. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Well, you just think on that phrase, the Lord will deal bountifully with you today. Would you just close your eyes and just dwell on that for a few seconds, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Oh, God, just like you dealt bountifully with David, you have dealt bountifully with us. And we praise you, Father. We take refuge in you together. There's craziness all around us. Our world is in chaos, but you are a God of order. You restore order to the chaos. And so in this place, God, we just, we just fully place all of our trust in you. Thank you for what you have taught us as we've discussed in our groups. Thank you for what you have taught us as we have studied these texts all week long. God, would you uh, just move me aside and would you speak to us today from these chapters? We long to hear from you. We want to see you clearly and, we, and we're trusting the Spirit to teach us. So thank you for that gift. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I grew up going to Sunday school. In fact, I loved Sunday school. I loved the stories. And I was that kid who would listen intently and couldn't wait to be the first one to answer all the questions and to recite my memory verses. But something really formative happened for me 
in Sunday school. You know, I came to believe that if I could just be good, like Hannah and Samuel and David, then maybe God would be proud of me. Maybe God would love me more. You see, I learned a lot about the Bible, but I didn't always see the essence of the gospel that it always pointed to. I knew that Jesus loved me. I just didn't know how desperately I needed him. So today, we're going to reclaim my Sunday school years. I have this daunting task of summarizing really all of the stories that I learned about David as a kid in one lesson today. And so I thought it would be fitting to frame our lesson with a children's story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. So as a way to review what Suzanne taught us last week and to set up our text for today, I am going to read to you the first pages of the teeny, weeny, true king. You can read along with me if you would like. God's people had a new land. Now they wanted a king. But God is your king, Samuel told them. He is the one who looks after you best. We want a real king, they said. One we can see. God knew that a king might not be kind to his people or looked after them as well as he would. But God's people didn't care. They wanted a king, and they wanted him now. So God gave them a king. He was called Saul, and he seemed like a good king at first. But he became proud and stopped listening to God. He didn't obey God or love God with his whole heart. Saul can't help me with my plan, God said. I need a king who loves me and will teach my people to love me. Go to Bethlehem, God told Samuel. You'll find a new king there. Samuel's job was to listen to God and to tell people what God said. So Suzanne helped us to see so well last week that Saul chose not to trust God nor to obey him wholeheartedly. Remember the words that Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14? The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So chapter 16 begins with Samuel heading to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to look for this king. So our operating question today for 1 Samuel chapters 16 to 20 is this. What will God's king be like? So let's explore what David and the one that he points to, Jesus, will be like in these chapters. And then we'll go back and finish that story. So first of all, in chapter 16, we see that God's king will be ordinary and unexpected. I love to imagine what David might have been like as a child. Was he funny and free-spirited spirited, or serious and orderly? Was he a practical joker or a rule follower? Was he a picky eater or an agreeable kid? Whatever it was, it was so ordinary that even his own father, Jesse, didn't even consider him as worthy of evaluation when Samuel asked to see his sons. David was the baby of the family, so maybe he was a little forgotten, the runt of the litter, so to speak. Well, chapter 16 described David as handsome and ruddy, 
But in the original language, that was more of a description of a cute kid. He had the lowest job of the family. He tended the sheep, likely spending long stretches of time isolated and alone without the recognition of anyone. Perhaps this nurtured traits of humility and compassion in the young boy. Maybe out in the mundanity of the pasture, with a lot of time on his hands, this shepherd boy developed a heart that was tender to God, soft and moldable. As he wrote poems and set them to music for an audience of one, long before he was ever a musician in Saul's court. We know that David's heart was what was pleasing to the Lord because God told Samuel prior to choosing David in chapter 16 not to consider the height or the appearance of Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. Remember that phrase in verse 7? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, similarly, we know that Jesus would be ordinary and unexpected. He lived in relative obscurity in the backwoods of Nazareth for close to 30 years. In John chapter 1, when Philip told Nathanael that they had found the Messiah, Nathanael said, can anything good come from Nazareth? The prophet Isaiah described what Jesus would be like in Isaiah 53 verse 2. He said, for he grew up before them like a young plant. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. But we know something about Jesus' heart, tender and compassionate like a good shepherd, would draw men and women, sinners like you and me, to himself. Well, next, we learn in chapter 17 that God's king will defend God's name against a great enemy on behalf of the people. Maybe the most recognizable story of David's boyhood is his encounter with Goliath in chapter 17. But I so often missed the point of this story. You see, Goliath, this great giant from Gath, he represents all the mocking opposition to God in this chapter. Remember Eliab, David's own brother, mocked David and thus his God? Saul essentially mocked God by his insecurity and fear in facing this great enemy of Israel. And Goliath obviously and overtly taunts God's people and and young David. But we know, right, that it's Satan who fuels the skepticism and mockery in every sinful human heart, who wrestles with depending on self versus depending on God. But David, on the other hand, he was not confident in himself nor in his abilities, but in the God that he served. Likely he had experienced God's presence and protection in the sheep pastures. He communed with God. He knew him very personally, and he watched God defeat the enemies of his sheep. David made bold claims because he knew the character of his God. So three times in the story, David powerfully defends God with his words. Let's look in chapter 17. First, in verse 26, to his mocking brother Eliab, David said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
And then in verse 37, to the great King Saul, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And then perhaps the most powerful in verses 45 and 46, to the menacing giant Goliath, David said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then a little later, all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. So rather than defending his weaponry or his skill or even his victory over Goliath with his head in his hands, David gave all glory to God, defending God's great name. That same defense would be true of Jesus. He never boasted of his power or skill or weaponry, but he made much of his father's honor and authority. Remember in John 5:19, he said, Jesus said, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the, the father does, that the son does likewise. Even in response to the mocking of being stripped, dressed in a robe and a crown of thorns, spit upon, beaten, and then hung on a cross, Luke tells us that Jesus turned his attention to the Father with his words, saying in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus' life was never taken from him. He willingly laid it down so that all the earth would know that God is both just and merciful. Well, we often apply this passage by making ourselves to be David, the underdog, and wanting God to help us conquer the giants in our lives. I think the better application is to see ourselves as Israel and David as Jesus. Israel shares in the victory with David, even though they did nothing to earn it themselves. We, like Israel, need a representative to fight and to win the battle with the menacing and mocking giant of sin. None of us could overcome that giant. Our only hope was God in the flesh of an ordinary and unexpected Messiah from Nazareth. And rather than cutting off sin's head, Jesus allowed himself to be cut off, but then rose again to defeat sin and death once and for all. Well, next we see in chapter 18 that God's king will be a good friend. I could really do an entire lesson on chapter 18, just verses 1 to 3. I want you to read that with me. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. God's king needed a friend, and he was a friend. Jonathan loved David as his own soul, in striking contrast to his father Saul. Jonathan's friendship entered David's soul in a way that Saul's hatred and jealousy never could. 
Jesus, the Son of God, would both need friends and be a friend. In fact, he said to his disciples and subsequently to us in John 15, verses 13 to 15, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Well, God has blessed me with some amazing friends over the course of my life, but I've never known a friend like Jesus. He's been with me in deeply personal ways, in my darkest moments, and in my most profound joys. He has never disappointed me nor left me alone. His friendship has entered my soul in a way that depression and darkness never could. The good news is that he offers that same friendship to each and every one of us. But it will be costly. For you see, in chapter 18, we also see that God's king will bring division amongst families. As David and Jonathan are being knit together as friends, Saul becomes jealous of David. Back in 1 Samuel 16, 6, we learned that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. He was mentally unstable and dangerously insecure. And rather than being soothed by David's songs as his musician, we see that Saul began to fear David, threatened when the people literally started singing David's praises after his victory over Goliath. Saul wants David dead, even exploiting his own daughter, Michael's love for David, for his selfish vendetta giving her to him in marriage, yet secretly plotting to kill him by requiring what he thought would be a deadly bride's price. But nonetheless, Jonathan, as heir to his father's throne, esteems David as God's chosen king. He strips off his own robe, his sword, his bow, and his belt, and gives them to David as a covenant bond. Jonathan gave up his kingdom, his rightful place as heir, to follow God's king. That kind of loyal friendship was deeper and more intimate than any family tie. Well, Jesus would also bring division amongst families. Following him, Jesus said, would be costly. Some may have to give up their family rights to become part of a new and a different family. Remember in Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I know that sounds so incredibly harsh, but Jesus was saying that friendship with him is better and more intimate than any friendship or family relationship that you currently have. Jesus laid down his life for us, his friends, and he's asking for our wholehearted devotion in return, not to punish us, but because that relationship is good and life-giving. 
And to be honest, this has been a real struggle and a challenge for me. I've struggled with idolizing family and friend relationships in my life. I have bargained with God on many occasions, asking for my kingdoms to fall into place just the way that I wanted them, rather than sacrificing like Jonathan to follow God's king. I'm so thankful for Jesus' patience with us, for he knows every temptation that we've ever faced. He lives to make intercession for us, and he's given us his spirit inside of us to help us and to change us. He really is the very best friend. Well, next, we see in chapter 19 that God's king will receive favor from God. David received nothing but malice from Saul. In fact, chapter 18.8 said that Saul became David's continual enemy. He went so far as throwing spears at him, not once, but twice. In chapter 19, Saul reverts to plotting that his men just straight up go out and kill David. David finally gets the point and flees, beginning a long season of running from Saul. But all the while, God's king receives favor from God. He is protected in very unique ways. First, via his covenant relationship with Jonathan. Jonathan defends David to Saul and warns him of imminent danger. Next, David is protected by Michael in chapter 19, when she secretly lets him out of a window by night before he is to be killed the next morning. And then she buys time by planting a decoy in his bed. Finally, and perhaps most profoundly, he is protected by God's spirit in chapter 19, verses 18 to 24. When he went to Samuel and was confronted by Saul's men twice, but the spirit of God comes over them and they just start prophesying. Isn't that amazing? God sends raw, irresistible power to compel them to helplessness, to protect his anointed Even Saul can't overcome that power, and he starts prophesying too. Well, Jesus would be rejected by his peers, but granted favor by his father. Jesus' own family didn't believe in him. Judas betrayed him. His disciples fled upon his arrest, and Peter denied him openly three times. But Jesus was repeatedly protected and strengthened by the Spirit, descending upon him in his baptism in Mark chapter 1 with God's affirming voice, confirming to everyone, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit would lead and guide Jesus throughout his ministry, enabling him to escape death until it was time to willingly lay down his life giving him the courage and the strength that he would need to accomplish his rescue mission for humanity. Well, finally, in chapters 19 and 20, we see that God's king will make and keep covenants. David and Jonathan's covenant friendship was formalized back in chapter 18, but in chapter 19, verses 2 to 3, And in chapter 24 to 16, we see these promises continue to intensify. David and Jonathan both swear their love and commitment to one another. 
Jonathan promising to sound out his father and warn David of imminent danger. And David promising not to cut off his love from Jonathan's house forever. Jonathan follows through repeatedly, emptying himself to draw out the rage of his father, and then eventually warning David with those elaborate arrow shooting displays that his life is in danger and that he should make a final departure. I get choked up by their final goodbye scene every time. They were full of weeping, solidifying their covenant vows when Jonathan said in verse 42 of chapter 20, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. This is a beautiful picture of the covenant of peace that Jesus made with us through his death, burial, resurrection, and giving us of his spirit. Paul described it this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Jesus promised himself to us, his church, his bride. He died to make us holy. He gave us his spirit to continue that sanctification process. And ultimately, he will return to take us home. And as his image bearers, he wants us to be people who make and keep covenants of marriage and friendship and community. So I ask you one more time, what will God's king look like? What will he be like? Let's go back and finish our opening story. Jesse's youngest son came running up, and God spoke quietly to Samuel. This is the one. His name was David. He has a heart like mine, God said. It is full of love. He will help with my secret rescue plan. And one of his children's children's children will be the king. And that king will rule the world forever. Samuel anointed David's head with oil, which was a special way to show that you are God's chosen king. You will be the new king one day, Samuel told him. And sure enough, when he grew up, David became king. God chose David to be king because God was getting his people ready for an even greater king who was coming. And once again, God would say, go to Bethlehem. You'll find a new king there. And there, one starry night in Bethlehem, in the town of David, three wise men would find him. Let's pray. God, it's such a gift to see you lay the gospel out for us in, the, in these chapters of 1 Samuel as you showed us what your king would be like. And as we see David and his heart, a heart after yours, Father, we see our Savior 
see your son who you gave so freely to us, to be a friend, to lay down his life for us, to give us a spirit, to help us, to change us, to transform us from one degree of glory into another until we look like your son. So we are so grateful today. God, would you continue to teach us as we, as we study in this book? Would you give us wisdom 